Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're talking about walking and pilgrimages. We're joined by Richard Fraser, who is the author of Travels with a Stick. The book's subtitle is A Pilgrim's Journey to Santiago de Compostela. Richard is a Church of Scotland minister in Greyfriars in Edinburgh. Santiago de Compostela is a destination of the Camino de Santiago, also known as the Way of St. James. It's one of the most famous of all pilgrimages, with pilgrims journeying to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Galicia in northwestern Spain. The cathedral is a shrine to St. James, and pilgrims have been making their way to this city since medieval times. Today, although perhaps not this summer, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims make this journey each year from starting points in Spain, France, Portugal and elsewhere. Richard's book isn't just another memoir about making an awfully long walk. He considers the importance of the spiritual aspect of being a pilgrim, and we're going to hear more about that today. Welcome, Richard. Welcome. Thank you very much for the welcome. It's good to be with you. Yes, uh, I really uh, enjoyed your book. And my first question is, how many times did you lose your walking stick on that 700-mile walk? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's very interesting, actually, because I was given that stick by a friend who had done a bit of the Camino de Santiago herself many years before. And it was the first time that I'd really been walking with a stick. It's a long wooden pole, actually, not, not some of these sticks that people use nowadays. Um, and I, spo- I suppose part of the reason that I kept losing it was that I was so unused to carrying something like a stick. But you're right that uh, I lost it numerous times at the beginning. Not only did I leave it behind in places, but I also lost it, almost lost it, on the very first day of my walk in Le puy en velay when it uh, started to disappear through a grating in the floor of the cathedral just before I set off. So uh, it became a bit of a character, the stick. You began the walk with the intention of not revealing that you're a Church of Scotland minister to your fellow pilgrims. Why did you have that intention at the start of the journey? Well, that's, uh, you know, I think it's true of a lot of different professions or walks of life where, you know, a GP, a doctor, might not tell people that they're a doctor when they're, um, not on duty, as it were, because invariably what people often do with a doctor is to start telling them about their symptoms. And if you're having a bit of a break, the last thing you want is on duty. And so for me, doing this walk was my time for myself. It was a time to be away from my daily work as a parish minister in the Church of Scotland. I had seven weeks and I wanted just really to, to be slightly anonymous. And uh, it does often happen when you're a minister that once you're sitting in a bar with someone in the evening and you tell people what you do for a living, immediately people start quizzing you about theology or telling you their woes or looking for some pastoral support. So it doesn't happen all the time. But uh, So yes, I was a wee bit reluctant to let on who what I, what I did for a living. But I think there was another reason too, and that was um, I um, I think the word pilgrimage gets a 
bit of a sort of um, a lot of people misinterpret the word pilgrim because they they kind of think that people set off on a pilgrimage because they're deeply uh, devout people. And many of the people on the Camino de Santiago are doing this, not necessarily for religious and spiritual reasons, but sometimes, even though they start out without a, a spiritual intention or without a religious commitment, they find that at the end, the, the Camino has somehow taken them and they find themselves doing something spiritual at the end of it. One of the themes that seemed to come out of the the book was the kindness of strangers um, along the route. W- would that be true? Definitely. You know, I think <laughs> I think when you make yourself vulnerable, as happened to me at the beginning of my walk, because I'm a very keen walker. I've been walking all my life since I was uh, seven or eight years old going out to the Scottish Hills. But I set off um, at a blistering pace and got some really bad blisters and some tendonitis in my ankles and shins and was in really a bad way after about three days of walking. I'd also got really wet right at the beginning and so got really awful blisters. And uh, a guy who had to be called uh, Jacques, Frenchman, uh, saw my feet and he offered to minister to my feet. He, he said to me uh, when he saw the state of my feet in, in a hostel in Aumont Aubrac that he, he was always keen to provide support for people when they were struggling on walks. And it was an extraordinary thing to have this guy in his dormitory in the middle of the night with a head torch on, cutting away dead skin and ministering to my feet and um, telling me what I should do in order to look after myself. And as a as a as a minister, I think I'd spent my whole life being the person that was that was offering support to others. And suddenly I found myself being supported by someone in my moment of weakness. And it felt a really profound lesson in life that uh, maybe one should recognize one's own vulnerability a bit more often than one does and accept that there are so many people out there who are willing to be kind. And certainly early on in my walk, that was one of the first lessons I learned. It, it is an epic walk. And when I read the book, I was expecting um, you to write more about what it was like to reach the cathedral itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have mm-hmm. to ask, what did it feel like when you complete a huge walk like that and you walk into that, that famous cathedral? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have to say in some ways it's a bit of an anticlimax. You know, you get so used to walking and walking, probably averaging 25, 30, sometimes over 40 kilometers a day. And your body starts to kind of get used to that and expect that every day. So when you get to the end, <laughs> you, you kind of, there's an almost a kind of anticlimax because you're no longer going to be doing the thing that your body has got accustomed to doing every day. And that can be quite a shock. And I remember actually when I got back to Edinburgh, I'd been home for about three or four days and I said to my wife, I need to go out for a walk. And I set off and before I knew it really, I walked along this canal that goes out of Edinburgh and and wends its way towards the west of Scotland. 
and I was at a town called Linlithgow, which is about 20, 25 miles from Edinburgh. <laughs> and I'd, I'd only gone out for a short walk, but I'd done this massive, um, this massive journey because that was what my body had got used to. So there's a degree to which there's a, there's a lot of celebration and there's a lot of hugging and, uh, and people congratulating one another and you get certificates when you arrive in Santiago to say that you're a pilgrim and it's, it's wonderful. But it's also an end. Right. So pilgrimages, have, have you undertaken other pilgrimages? Yes, I have. Uh, I've been involved for many years now in trying to revive an interest in pilgrimage, uh, in sacred walks and journeys here in Scotland. And now, actually, it's amazing because um, at the time of the Reformation, which happened in Scotland in 1560, when Scotland became a Protestant country, by and large, pilgrimage was outlawed. And so places like the town of St Andrews on the east coast of Scotland, the island of Iona on the west, and numerous other places throughout Scotland, um, which had been pilgrim destinations for for people for centuries, uh, now ceased to be places of pilgrimage. And the idea, the practice of pilgrimage was frowned upon by the reformers and the Protestants. Uh, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, as well as John Knox, thought that pilgrimage was just the wrong thing to do. The reason that they thought that was that um, they thought that venerating the bones of a dead saint was a, was a form of idolatry. They didn't believe uh, that you could be healed at a well that was made sacred because some saints had been there. And so they, they thought that it, was, uh, that it was the wrong thing to be doing. They also, I think, objected to the fact that sometimes people make money out of pilgrims. But in reality, I think that the real pilgrimage is not so much the destination, but the journey and the encounters that you have with people, the stories you hear and the lessons you learn from others. And, and in fact, one of the things that I've been very keen to try to do is to, is to kind of rehabilitate pilgrimage within the Church of Scotland. And we succeeded in doing that about three years ago when we took a report which I and a couple of other people wrote to the General Assembly, the annual meeting of the Church of Scotland. And we invited the Church, after 400 years of opposition, to endorse the idea that pilgrimage was a good thing. And in these years, these 20 odd years that I've been involved in pilgrimage walking, there has been a huge revival. And we now have about 1,500 miles of designated pilgrimage routes for people to walk in Scotland. And so it's, a, it's, it's coming back as a, a sort of spiritual exercise, but also something that people can do without necessarily having any faith at all. But as many people say, you know, you start out to do a pilgrimage, but in, a, in the end, the pilgrimage does you. And it does extraordinary transformative things to people, even although they might not be people who are conventionally religious. So are people attempting these these revived pilgrimage trails in Scotland now? Yes, they are. There are quite a number of... Uh, again, it's... it's, it's on the scale of the Camino de Santiago, where, as you pointed out in your introduction, there are hundreds of thousands of people arriving in Santiago in the course of the year. 
And the Scottish pilgrim routes are much less well walked. And and that's actually quite an attractive thing for people. I mean, I would, you know, I would thoroughly recommend any of your listeners in, in any part of the world to come to Scotland and do some walking here. The weather might not be as 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 benign as it may be in Spain, but uh, but there's some beautiful countryside to walk through, some great stories to hear and to read about the history of faith and culture in Scotland. The and the landscape is just so gorgeous in Scotland too. Sorry, Richard, does a pilgrimage have to have a spiritual destination, such as a church or um, some sort of shrine? No, I don't think it does. Um, I I think, you know, a lot of these um, churches along the way of Santiago are are only there because they were there to serve pilgrims and to provide them with a place of sanctuary as they were travelling along them. And the pilgrimage destinations like St. Andrew's in Scotland was supposedly the bones of the Apostle Andrew were brought to Scotland at some point in history. And in Santiago, it's the bones of St. James that were supposed to have been there. But actually, in my view, I think um, the, the really significant thing about pilgrimage today is not so much about the shrine or the sacred place, as valid as that is for some people. It's really about reading a cultural, spiritual, and historical narrative through a landscape that I think is so valuable for people. You know, it's it's about hearing a story and then feeling that one is part of a story. That I think that's what people find really enriching and rewarding about pilgrimage today. One of my great heroes is John Muir, who started the Era Club. One of the things that he talks about is... Um, is he says that you shouldn't go hiking. He said you should saunter. And he didn't like the word hike. Interestingly enough, when he saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, he said something that I thought was incredibly Presbyterian. He said uh, an ostentatious gesture even for God when he saw the Grand Canyon. But what, but what John Muir talked about was the idea that we should saunter through the landscape, not hike. And saunter is he said, a French word, where people would see these people walking through the countryside in France or, and, and they would ask, so where are you going? And they would say, à la Santerre, which is to the Holy Land. They were pilgrims. And as far as John Muir was concerned, and I completely agree with him, all land, the landscape, the earth that we inhabit is sacred. It's a sacred trust to us. And therefore, we shouldn't hike through it and dominate it. We should saunter through it and reverence it. Uh, And I think that's a very healthy thing in these times of ecological crisis. It sounds like it's important not to go too fast. Definitely. Yeah, that was my problem at the beginning. There are many books uh, to read currently about walking, including yours, and within the last decade or so, there seems to be more and more of them. Um, what are the books about walking that have influenced you the most? Well, uh, one of them has to be uh, almost anything by Robert McFarlane, who is a terrific writer, uh, a reader in English literature, I think, at Cambridge University. 
he's written a number of books about uh, about the old ways as one of them and sacred places and and you know he has this wonderful kind of sense which I completely resonate with of of the idea of the sacredness of landscape and of the stories it tells and I think one of the things that I really like about that is that when I started out my hill walking you know one of the interesting things is that uh, most of the Scottish hills have a Gaelic name and I'm not a Gaelic speaker, as most people in Scotland aren't. So we don't know that that uh, that the hills have a name, and if you translate that name, it's often it's often a story behind the name of a hill. Like there's a wonderful hill called Shehalian in the heart of Scotland, and it's called the the Fairy Hill of the Caledonians. Not many people know that, but it's wonderful to find out these kind of the story behind places and behind names of places. And Robert McFarlane has done a huge amount in in Britain to kind of just reawaken people to, to that sort of sense of place and landscape. The other person that I really enjoy reading is uh, a, a, lady, a woman called Nan Shepherd, who was uh, a, a, she was a teacher in Scotland, but she she got to know the care. One of the highest mountain ranges in Scotland is called the Cairn Gorms. Again, it's right in the heart of Scotland. It's an area um, which is a kind of plateau. And, and one of the things that, uh, that she did was she, she really got to know that landscape incredibly well over many, many years. Just walking around the same routes, going to the same places, but becoming familiar and again, familiar not just with with each the top of each hill, which is often what I think hikers are guilty of, is just taking off the tops of hills. And and she found herself becoming deeply embedded in in the in the narrative and the feeling of place. And I just love that. And so these are two writers that I have thoroughly enjoyed. But there's, a, but there's a succession of others um, that, whom I, I really like. Um, I mean, there are so many people that have written about uh, about walking. Um, Nicholas Crane, for example, is, is a wonderful uh, writer and has written and broadcast many, many books about uh, about his epic walks around the world. Um, gosh, and Alistair McIntosh, who is, a, is actually a friend of mine and is a spiritual activist. And he's written a book again about, uh, about the importance, a number of books actually, about, um, about landscape and about the environment. Has actually just this month has published a new book on climate change from a kind of spiritual perspective. Fascinating. I haven't read it yet, but it will be fascinating reading. And he's written another book about his about his homeland, which is uh, the, the Hebrides in Scotland, called Poacher's Pilgrimage. And uh, a really wonderful man and a wonderful writer. The list goes on of people that write wonderful books about writing, about read, about walking. Yeah, there seems to be so many at the moment. I, I agree with what you said about Robert McFarlane. It, it feels like he's considering all the people who walked that path, that trail before him and what that trail might have meant to them. Yeah. 
absolutely you only need to go back 60 mm-hmm. years and there's probably another generation of books there just waiting to be rediscovered i, th- I think that's absolutely right yeah i mean um there's something about uh i think i think one of the things that i find that's really refreshing at the moment is um a friend of mine who's an academic he talked about i mean this is a bit of a clumsy term but he talked about the the heritageization of history now my friend is a he's a professor of of history at york university and what he means by that phrase the heritageization of history is the idea that that one of the things that the in the, the tourist industry has generated is this idea that that you look at places whether that's historic places whether that's landscape almost from behind a rope that there are people there to interpret it to you that you consume it like a like you would consume ice cream you know just something that you do visit a historic place visit a a beautiful landscape as a tourist as a consumer but what my friend Simon Ditchfield was arguing for is arguing for is that we are all part of history. So the idea that you have a history interpreted for you as a consumer is is completely inappropriate. And so he he argues that what we need to do is to kind of re. Uh, I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth, but I think that what he's arguing for is that is that we're all. That, that we walk a landscape and we contribute to it, we're part of it. We visit a historic place and we're part of that story. It's not just something that we consume. And our choices and, and our um, experience is part of the unfolding narrative of place. And I think that's really, really important. Sounds like there's a... Like a frustration for the ever-increasing trend in uh, visitor centres whenever you go anywhere historic. Um. Yeah. I, a, a few years ago, I went, I, I wanted to do this for years, but my wife and I went to St Kilda, which is this island 40, 50 miles off the westernmost point of the British Isles. So it's right out in the Atlantic. And it's just this amazing archipelago of rocks, and it's an amazing place. And the, the population of, there were about 40 people. It had been continuously inhabited for over 2,000 years. And in 1960, the population requested the government to um, bring them off the island because they were, you know, they, they were really struggling to keep going. Uh, there were very few facilities at that time. The, the, the getting to the island was really difficult. But the interesting thing is when we arrived on St Kilda, which is this absolutely stunning primordial place with these amazing seabird colonies and this incredible kind of history, you're immediately met when you come on to the island by someone from the National Trust for Scotland telling you with a broad Yorkshire accent, welcome to St Kilda. And it just, somehow it just felt all wrong that you I didn't want to be kind of, uh, I didn't want to have the place interpreted for me. I wanted just to experience it for myself because I'd read about this extraordinary place and this extraordinary community of people. One of the last hunter-gatherer communities in Europe, right up until the 
expertise, a large portion of their um, of their sustenance was when they they had these guys who had extraordinary kind of uh, agility would make these ropes and climb down the cliffs, the sea cliffs, and gather gannets' eggs and uh, fulmer eggs, and they would eat birds and bird eggs as part of their diet. But you don't want to hear that interpreted for you. You just want to kind of inhabit it and be part of it, you know? So if you go back, if we go back and think about the uh, the Camino de Santiago, when, when you set off in the morning from a hostel and you, you could see fellow pilgrims all around you as you walked ahead, did you feel you were part of a community then or did it feel crowded and you were on a tourist trail? Yeah, I have to say it is getting, well, I, you know, the COVID-19 situation is changing everything and who knows what's going to happen to the Camino de Santiago, but certainly every year for the last 20 years, the numbers doing the Camino de Santiago have increased and it can get quite congested. The nearer you get to Santiago, the busier it gets because more and more people join as you get closer to Santiago. So it, it can feel a wee bit congested and uh, a lot of the walking that I enjoy is in very remote, lonely places rather than in big crowds. But I wouldn't say that it felt like a tourist trail because most of the people that are doing the Camino de Santiago, albeit they might be in in groups and they might be um, you know, walking with other people, most of the people are doing it not as a tourist uh, event in their lives, but they're doing it because they're they're kind of on a journey, an internal journey. One of the things John Muir said, which famously he said was, going out is really a going in. And many of the people that I met and chatted to would say that that, that, that was exactly why they were doing this, that, that they were exploring their life. They were maybe young people sort of, you know, finishing university and thinking about what they wanted to do with their lives. There were older people who were maybe thinking about what, what they were going to do with their third age. There were other people who were recovering from illness or recovering from bereavement. And all of these people were doing this. So many of the people I met were, were doing this not to be consumers, but to allow that experience to, to shape them and to reconfigure their lives in some way or other. And therefore, I, I, I didn't feel that I was on some congested tourist trail I felt I was on this this kind of human um, pilgrimage together, this human journey of searchers after some greater depth in people's lives. So it was it was it was a really wonderful community to be part of. But it is getting busier. As to what will happen as we emerge out of COVID nineteen, who knows? Yes, who knows? Because these, I think yeah. I think people will rediscover walking their walk walking or walking trails on their own doorstep not far away yeah i'm, I'm sure that's the case and uh you know one of the things that people often say you know people often ask you so where where does the camino start and one of the things i often say is well it starts where you are you know and i met people 
I met one guy one day who uh, I asked him, where did you start? And he said, well, my Camino started when I shut my front door in Gothenburg four months ago, Gothenburg in Sweden. And he was halfway across Spain by the time I met him. So, yeah, I think, and, and with all these new routes opening up in Scotland and the Scottish government really taking seriously this idea, not just of pilgrimage routes, but of walking trails and there's been quite a significant investment in improving the path network in Scotland. So it's it's a really great place to, to walk for for um I suppose I'm I'm plugging Scotland as a walking destination for people, but um, why not? You're doing a very good job. Um it is a fine place to walk. Uh one last question, Richard, and it's the one we ask all our guests. Um but what book or books are you currently reading? Oh, right. Well, gosh, um, <laughs> there are two. Bo- I've, I've always got several books on the go. And uh, the, there are two books that I'm reading at the moment. Are One is a biography of a man called Bede Griffiths. Um, he was originally known as Alan Griffiths, and he was... Uh, as a young man, is born at the beginning of the of the 20th century. Um, was too young to fight in the Great War, but was at Cape at uh, Oxford University, I think, just in the early 20s. And he was someone who went on this extraordinary journey himself, and ended up um, having been brought up vaguely in the Church of England. He then became a Benedictine monk and ended up at a monastery in the north of Scotland called Pluskaden. And then he ended up being really intrigued by Eastern mysticism and established an ashram in India. And he wrote a wonderful book, which I read many years ago, called The Golden String, in which he talked about, it's, it's a, that phrase, The Golden String, is a reference to uh, George um, Herbert's George Herbert is it? Have I got the right person? The poem Jerusalem, take up the end of a golden string and it will lead you into heaven's gate built into Jerusalem's wall. And and the idea behind that is that all our spiritual traditions are part of a golden thread of the life of the spirit that runs through all of humanity, and that there are parallels, there are uh, resonances, uh, there are things to learn if we pay attention to and we have a, a respectful dialogue with people of different faith traditions. So Bede Griffiths, the biography of Bede Griffiths is something that I'm really enjoying reading at the moment. And the other book I'm reading is by Karen Armstrong and it's called uh, it's called a um, a short history of myth. And and again, I find this really fascinating that myth is something that in our, especially in our Western rationalist tradition, we've often lumped mythology, myth, with the idea of superstition. And we've become very rational and very scientific and, and looking for evidence all the time. But what Karen Matheson, Karen, Karen Matheson, Karen um, Armstrong is suggesting is that uh, is that myth is really important for us, 
and it's one of the ways in which we undergird our sense of who we are by telling stories about ourselves. And uh, two absolutely fascinating books that are, I think, hugely, hugely stimulating, and I'm really enjoying them. They sound excellent. That that last one sounds like um, sounds like she's going into the the culture of storytelling, the importance of storytelling. Indeed, indeed, yes. I mean, I think that's that that's really important. Um, both these people, both uh, I didn't really realise this, but both these people, Karen Ma and Karen um, Armstrong, and Bede Griffiths spent time uh, she was a nun for a number of years Bede Griffiths was a was a Benedictine monk for a number of years and but they but they went beyond that moved on and Karen now is a is a writer and journalist and broadcaster based in London but she's a fascinating writer she's written lots of really interesting books about faith and spirituality and about what it means in the modern world excellent all right then, Richard, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Um, I want to say many thanks to Richard Fraser, who is the author of Travels with a Stick and also a minister in Greyfriars in Edinburgh in Scotland. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Richard. All Thank the very you. best. Thank you for listening. My name's Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Ape Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.